Well, good morning. We're in John 18. And my overall subject in John 18 is really uh, Jesus in command of the situation. Now, you'll notice on your handout there, if you got it uh, there for you, I've, I've just listed the other points that we've gone through, other ideas there, that Jesus being commanded this situation means that he initiated contact. If you go back there and read in uh, John where uh, the soldiers and people are coming and Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? He, he initiates the contact. Uh, <clears throat> the second thing in this Jesus being in command is he is determined, determined to protect his disciples. <clears throat> You'll see that there. He says, you, let him go. You know, you came for me, let him go. He's determined to protect his own, which is a fascinating uh, thing there. And then he's determined to drink the cup. That his father said, he said, you know, shall I not drink the cup that my father gave to me? So he's determined, um, if you will, to do the father's will. Third, uh, Jesus in command of this is his willingness or his confrontation uh, with the religious leaders. His confrontation, we discussed last week uh, how the trial is illegal, how that he forces their hand uh, for them to, uh, to, to destroy him. And we, we uh, had some discussion about that. Uh, this week, <clears throat> I really want to look at what I'm calling here uh, on this slide here called uh, Jesus. Um, e- I don't think I put it on there, did I? <clears throat> is, there's another one on your handout, isn't there? Yeah, that's being ADD, isn't it? Here it is. <clears throat> it's in my notes. This is D is Jesus's essential affirmation. Jesus's essential affirmation. I got to make sure I'm on the right slide here. Now, oh, here we go. I had that. Fake myself out. Here it is. Jesus's essential affirmation. Anybody heard of essential oils? Heard of that? You know, every time I go to my barber, uh, she's hairstylist, you know, uh, uh, this, this person is always talking about, and of course, the word essential makes me interested. I'm worried, are they really? Are they really essential? You know, I, have I been living all this long without them? And they're essential. Uh, I, you know, did a little research, looked at them, and they, they, these oils have been used, in, and there's some uh, idea of the aromatherapy and things like that, but it just kind of uh, intrigued me. Essential oils, you know? Uh, essential things. I, I thought of essential Jesus here, really uh, making some essential assertions, I thought of this. This person did not think of essential. (laughs) It's one thing to park your car. (laughs) Yeah, it's essential when you park your car in a snowstorm to close the... Yeah, that's that's sort of essential. I I would agree with that. Uh, There's another one here. I thought that was pretty interesting. Somebody in production didn't think the entree was essential to the hungry man <clears throat> serving. <clears throat> you know, that's a <clears throat> little essential there. Um, yeah, you know, just thinking with me that um, that's kind of essential. You know, when we use the word essential here, we mean something that you can't do without, something <clears throat> that's necessary. And uh, <clears throat> in this uh, a particular passage, I think there is something here that Jesus asserts, we kind of touched last week, and I want to, want to get after it a little bit this week, and that's this. Number one is Jesus is asserting who he is. Now, I want you to notice here, and we're going to begin at verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again, <clears throat> excuse me, into the praetorium. That's the, that was what was considered the governor's residence in earlier Roman history. It was where the general stayed in his tent, but it was a, an official location. 
And we saw last week how silly uh, when Jesus conf- or the confrontation occurs that the uh, religious leaders are, are willing to murder the Son of God, but they're not willing to go into the praetorium. You know, <clears throat> it might defile us. How absurd. So here, <clears throat> Jesus is back in this praetorium and summoned, Jesus, Pilate did, and summoned, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I told you last week <clears throat> that if Jesus asserts this, this is no small thing. The Pharisees have accused him of blasphemy, which the Romans could care less about. But they care a lot about somebody calling themselves a king. That's called treason. And, you know, I've said this before, but we've all been Christians so long that it doesn't have the same effect when we say Jesus is Lord. That would have gotten you killed in the Roman Empire because there was one Lord and his name was Caesar. This was not just some small little appellation or <clears throat> to say about a person to say, ah, they're Lord. No, this, this is a big deal. So when Pilate says to him, so they say you're a king. Jesus here standing before them and Jesus said, are you saying this on your own? Or did somebody else tell you? I, I don't have time to unpack that, but that, <clears throat> that caused me in my week <clears throat> of study to, <clears throat> to, to at least po- posit this idea. Do you and I, we're going to get to this, but do you and I really believe that Jesus is king because we believe that or just somebody else told us? Jesus may be pressing here. It's a little bit like when he said to Peter, who do people say that I am? Well, some say this and some say Elijah and some say John the baptizer and others. And he says, yeah, but who do you say I am? This is similar to this. Pilate is saying, look, are you saying this on your own? Do you think that's who I am? Or did you just hear that from somebody else? You know, I tell my students a lot of times, part of the process of coming to your own faith is knowing what your parents told you and know know what your church told you and know what your youth pastor told you. But part of the struggle and strain at college is, what do I believe? (laughs) You know, what, what do I believe about this? And so Pilate presses this, or Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus presses this. And Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would be not handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, I want to discuss this idea. Because Jesus here is, is affirming or declaring both his kingship and his kingdom. Now, let me just refresh our memory. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is the effective rule of a king. The effective rule. What are the boundaries of a kingdom? That's the area that a king rules. So when Jesus uses this imagery, this is not unusual to them. It is to us. But this would be something akin to that the laws and authority of the United States of America are confined within the borders of the United States of America. This kingdom or this king, there's an effective rule here that Jesus is referring to. And we'll look at that in a little more detail. The kingdom is the effective rule of God. And where is it? Now, Jesus has already said, where is it? It's not of this world, right? You know, this may have calmed Pilate down a bit to think, oh, here's some mystical, you know, fly-by-night crazy rabbi uh, that's talking about something else. And the the Romans were fairly dismissive 
of much of what Judaism taught, and even in their own uh, polytheism of whether or not there was really anything to the next world or not. So, so, so Jesus here is declaring that he's a king and he has a kingdom. Now, I think here, I want to look at this, is there's some confusion here, not only in the New Testament time, but in ours. Not only then, but, but now. I briefly uh, touched on this last week, and I, you can just make a note, that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, by the way, let me just um, help you here. Uh, maybe you, know, you, you probably know this, but I'm often amused when people say that, that uh, writers write things or they uh, change some vocabulary. Uh, in our tradition, uh, the church of God, which we've been a part of, we had a lot of arguments over that the church should be called the church of God. If you have any background in the church of God, you know, there's a big, big argument about that. I was going to write an article to our um, uh, publication, a theological response to that, and then the president said, no, you're not. <laughs> he didn't want me poking the bear, <clears throat> you know. Uh, I wanted to. I, I thought, well, this is silly from this standpoint because <clears throat> in the New Testament, we know or have clear evidence that when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he called it the kingdom of God, okay? Now, when Matthew writes his gospel, he changes it to kingdom of heaven. And that's because it's written to Jews who absolutely will not pronounce or write the name of God. They won't do it. There is the sacredness of the name of God to such an extent that they will not speak his name. There's no different, it's not a different kingdom. It's a not, a, not a different understanding. It's a different term that is changed for the good of the audience so that they're not just inflamed. They're not just inflamed. And so when Jesus is speaking of this kingdom, it's a kingdom of God in the gospels or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven in order to get Jewish people to read this. I've discussed this before. You know, we, we know that uh, in Judaism, there is just the unwillingness to say the name or to write the name. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, where it were found in 1948 or 47, uh, in those writings, when they come to the name Yahweh or Vayahi, they're just four blanks. No word, won't say it. So this king, so there's some confusion here <clears throat> at times that people think, well, the kingdom of heaven, that's when? Later, <clears throat> and the kingdom of God might be now, maybe, whatever. There's all kinds of discussion about this. Another area of confusion, <clears throat> another area of confusion is even in the New Testament time. <clears throat> the word kingdom it's fascinating to me that the Jews are accusing Jesus of calling himself a king when that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted a king that would drive the Romans and pagans out. They dreamed for that day. They prayed for that day, that Mashiach, that the king would come and drive the pagans out. They dreamed for this. Jesus just didn't fit the template. And he threatened them. There's confusion here. <clears throat> I told you, go, go read this again in, in Matthew 11. I'm not going to take any time. Matthew 11, where John the baptizer has announced Jesus coming, identified him, said, there he is. <clears throat> then he gets thrown into jail. And after a while of life, gets the certainty beat out of him. <laughs> right? You had that happen to you yet? The certainty beaten right out of you about everything seems so simple. 
I told someone the other day, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but the older I'm getting, and I am. Yeah, I'm not gonna say that. The older I'm getting, the older I'm getting, um, the more, I said this back in the day, the more um, complex, the more, um, the more, the more bigger, that's right. The more bigger God is to me. I mean, Jesus is the full revelation. We're gonna talk about that. But I will tell you this, and you may, this may be your last Sunday here. And by the way, the thoughts and opinions teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions, Crossing Community Church or its leaders. I believe the Bible tells me everything I need to know about God, but I do not believe the Bible tells us everything there is to know about God. I think he's bigger than that. That's been weird. I'll tell you what it's done for me. It's created some humility. I mean, I know what I know, but I know what I know is not all there is to know, you know? I tell my students that and they're just, it's like they lock up. Like, come back. Come back, come back. Go back to Facebook, you'll be fine. <clears throat> yeah, hadn't <clears throat> experienced enough of it. But, but, this, but this idea that this kingdom, this God is bigger than what I can comprehend. I mean, listen, I, I, have, full compre- not, I have comprehension that God is made fully known through Jesus. I'm not, not, not saying anything there. I'm not saying that God's playing tricks on us. I'm simply saying that God is bigger than what we got in this book. And I'm, and I'm trying to lean into that. You know, John <clears throat> thought he had Jesus figured out. What'd he say? He said, the, the ax is laid at the root of the tree and the winnowing fork is in his hand. Those, those are two images of judgment. The winnowing fork separating the chaff from the wheat, that's an image of judgment. The ax laid at the root of the tree, that's an image of judgment. This isn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life stuff. <clears throat> This is, he's coming to town taking names, right? And this was what John assumed was going to happen. And I've said to you before, even John's language, he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or fire, not and, or. Because fire in this context is negative. It's judgmental. It's going to burn everything up. So what did John expect in this kingdom coming? Judgment, right? What was Jesus doing? healing people. Go read it. He sends his guys and says, are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? Wow. And Jesus said, you go tell John what you see. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, and the dead are raised. The gospel is preached to the poor. And then this final great line, and blessed is he who is not, does not take offense at me. Why would John be offended? Because Jesus isn't acting the way he expected. See, this kingdom gets a little out of bounds at times for us. So Jesus isn't acting like he expected. And so there, <clears throat> there's confusion. There's another level of confusion here. <clears throat> I think <clears throat> that if, if we're not careful, our confusion about the kingdom is that <clears throat> we think the kingdom, here my note, that the kingdom is only trying to solve a problem. What is that? Forgiveness of sin. We, we think the kingdom is just here. The, the message of the kingdom is just to solve a problem. It's our sin. 
It's true. It solves that, but that's not all. It, it, it's just here to, to solve a problem for us. We're sinners and we need to be forgiven. Or there's another confusion here that, if you will, that the kingdom is only about a place, like the kingdom of heaven. It's a place we're all going to, right? Kind of talk about that in the New Testament. It's a place. It either solves a problem, that's one of it, or it's, or it's a place. And I, I want to suggest to you it's more than that. that. That in fact, that when we have is the kingdom here, and i make sure I got my notes in front of me, that we're looking at it correctly. Here we go. We're back to technology. Now, let's move this forward here just a bit. N.T. Wright said this. He said, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew's gospel in chapter 6, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The phrase here, kingdom of heaven, is not about somewhere else, but about when God is king on the earth. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not just a place. There is a place called heaven. We believe that, that we're all excited about going to someday. But the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is wherever the king is ruling on earth. And the truth of the kingdom is the essential teaching of Jesus. We said that last week. Uh, Let me remind you. I'll just give you some evidence here about why why it's essential. The Old Testament prophesies this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Remember that great Christmas passage that a son's in the government will be where? On his shoulders. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That prophecy out of Isaiah 9 that says a child shall be born or this will be, and he, the government will be on his shoulders and of his kingdom there will be no end. So it's an Old Testament prophecy. All throughout that this one who is coming is coming to set up the rule of God in the territory we'll see of people's hearts. We said last week, how many times does, it's a test, see, I love giving it. How many times does the word kingdom or kingdom of God show up in the gospels? Remember? Good, yes. Uh, over 100, 120 times. 120 times throughout the synoptic gospels, the word kingdom shows up. More than anything else in the Testament, uh, I said 17, wasn't it, Earl? You text me 17 in the New Testament of forgiveness, but forgive is seven. We looked at that. The word forgive is seven. Now, some question about whether or not that means completeness. My personal opinion is it isn't because those seven are distributed throughout the Gospels. Now, I'm not going to follow my sword on this one, but I'm just saying 17 times forgiveness, 120 kingdom. Kind of out of balance, right? But the essential truth lots of times that we want to talk about, and it's, it's legitimate, is we want to talk about forgiveness. Jesus wants to talk about the kingdom, the rule of God in the hearts and lives of men and women. And that's what it literally means. Basileia, it means the rule of God in the hearts and lives of people. Think about how many parables Jesus taught. Matthew 13, over and over again, is a long list of them. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The parables over and over and over and over again. The content or the material of the the parables is about a kingdom. In the epistles, you know what the epistles are, right? Wives of the apostles, 
That joke is so old. I told you I'm going to give it a test one day. I'm going to watch freshmen write it down, then I'm going to put it on a test. The epistles are the letters, that's what it means in Greek, letter, of the New Testament from Romans to uh, Jude. Revelation is another genre. <clears throat> but you know, it's interesting in the, in the epistles, the word kingdom shows up 19 times. It isn't kind of dropped out. I, I, there's a couple of them I'd like for you to look at. Just You need to see them. Uh, oh, if you've got your Bibles or your phone or if you can get off Facebook here just for a second. I, I went to a, ba- uh, go to Colossians. I was at a basketball game the other night at the university and everybody at the basketball game was on their phone. And so I thought, well, I don't feel so bad now when they're in class and they're always on their phone. I don't think they can be off their phone. And there were some of us our age, don't be, don't be snarky with me here. Some of y'all are on your phone right now. Who's on Twitter right now? Colossians, here we go. Colossians 11.24. This is a fascinating verse that uh, uh, Paul writes here in the uh, first chapter. In Colossians uh, chapter one, what'd I say? Huh? I said 11.24? You passed. You passed. <clears throat> you caught it. Yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that. In Colossians 1, not 11. <clears throat> in Colossians 1, uh, verse 13. Watch this. For he rescued us from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That this idea he transferred, he took us out of the rule or the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the rule of his beloved son. That's the kingdom. <clears throat> that, that, that's what God did for us in Christ when he forgave our sins. That's important. We said it solves a problem. It does solve a problem. And we're going to a place called heaven someday. But in the meantime, in the what some scholars call the in the in between time, that's where the struggle is. In, in, in the in between time is where we have to remember we've been called to be a part of a kingdom where the rule of God is what we're responding to and relating to as God leads us. Now, there's another one I want you to see real quick. Go to, go to your table of contents again. The book of Hebrews. That's the Coffee Lover's Great Book, 1148. Hebrews chapter 12. I remember, um, just to tell you back on this, Hebrews chapter 12. Years ago, I was an associate pastor at a church in Houston. Uh, actually, the church that started the school at Mid-America. I was a senior associate um, all the faculty and the president and, and all those people um, went to church there. When I, when I preached, I had the chairman of the Greek department, the chairman of the theology department, the president of the university, the chairman of the ministry department. It was a real joy to be around those people. <laughs> sort of not. <laughs> uh, anyway, I was a senior associate at this church in Houston. Wayne Bolenbacher was on staff. I'd hired him as the uh, business administrator 
And through a terrible series of events, uh, the senior pastor was removed for some moral issues. And uh, I remember, uh, Wayne remembers, we were both there, that Wayne was working at this school there. I was there on a Saturday, and whenever uh, uh, we were doing some work around there, we did some outreach. I'm walking back toward my office, and all the board of directors are there. And they're walking out, and they're all shaking. My, Cliff, we really love you, man. And I'm thinking, am I dying? <laughs> am, I, am I dying? You know, <clears throat> we, we really love you. We really love you. So anyway, they, <clears throat> they take me in the office, and they tell me, because of some moral failure, <clears throat> this guy who had just put this church on the map was being removed. This is Saturday around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And they said, and tomorrow you're preaching. I said, where? <clears throat> Here. Tomorrow you're preaching. Now, this guy was, for every measure you could imagine, charismatic. I don't mean like, you know, speaking in tongues, or, but I mean, he could get you excited about going to get a glass of ice water. I mean, he had built that church. It had grown phenomenally. People just believed he could walk on water. And they're going to find out tomorrow that he's had moral failure in the worst way you can imagine. And I got to preach. I called my dad. <clears throat> Do you have any sermons? <clears throat> I, I didn't really ask him that. <clears throat> I, I, um, I was talking to him about what was going on. I said, Dad, I, this, this is the biggest, you know, I mean, we got to try to hold this thing together. Um, but, I mean, I had people later, <clears throat> honestly, uh, actually became the senior pastor through a series of very foolish decisions they made. <clears throat> Kind of like Marty. You know. um, well, that's what he says. That's what he says. Come on. I'm just reporting what the big boss says through a series of really, Tom knows, Tom, Tom's, Tom knows that was a good decision. Marty, anyway, anyway, I better get away from this. I'll be called into office. Um, but I mean, I, I was, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I, what are you going to say to people who, Somebody, I was going to say, I had people come to me after he was removed and say to me, do I need to get rebaptized because he baptized me? And I said, no, 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 no. God was looking at your faith, not his goofy life. You know, it, it, Augustine always said, God can use a crooked stick to point you in the right direction. And he literally did with that guy. And, and it was a traumatic thing. I, I went to his house and I felt like he owed me an explanation. Wouldn't even come to the door. Wouldn't even talk to me. So I go home. What, what am I going to tell people? What am I going to say? And, and this is the verse that came to me. God dropped it into my mind. And in chapter 12, uh, there's a lot of context here, but look, I want you, just as I read this, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And I preached my heart out that Sunday that no matter who was preaching or no matter who was leading, the kingdom that we're a part of is unshakable. The kingdom we belong to is unshakable. 
Let me tell you, I remember one semester at the university. I was teaching in my classes, and I noticed in the classroom there was Jinya Sverlov and her husband. I'm just thinking of this right now, so I'm trusting the Lord on this one. Roman. Jinya and Roman Sverlov were in my classroom at the top. Now, he had been a scientist at a university in Vladivostok. He was a scientist. He had, through a series of events, tragedies, had come to faith in Jesus and began to preach and to teach, quit his job at the university and began to preach and teach about Jesus in a communist-ruled country. Did incredible ministry, knew he needed more training, came to the United States of America and went to Mid-America Christian University. He went to this church for all the years he was here. Some of y'all may remember him. I don't know. Roman and Genius for Love. Next class, I had Helena Capo, who was in my class. This is all one semester. Helena was from Albania. And I said to her one day, I said, Helena, you're from Albania. She said, I know. (laughs) These smart aleck kids, I'm telling you, you know, I'm just trying to make conversation here, Bill. And she, she, I said, how is it that you are a follower of Jesus? Listen, I'm an old guy in the 70s. The government of Albania announced that they would be the first completely atheistic country in the world. They burnt down every church, every mosque, and every synagogue. They put every preacher, every priest, and imam in jail. They stamped religion out in Albania. So tell me your story. She said, Cliff, my family would go down to the river, and I can't remember if it's Elba or, you know, I don't know what name of the river is, but it's a river through there. You can go check your geography later. The river goes down there, and she said, followers of Jesus in Macedonia, which is above them, would float down gospel tracks down the river while we were washing our clothes and as we did and read them, she said, my entire family became followers of Jesus and I'm here to go to school. Last guy. Now, these are all three in the same semester. Kim Nan from Burma or Myanmar, whatever you want to call it. Kim Nan was a follower of Jesus from one of the most oppressive countries in the world, still is. Uh, still is an oppressive country. Kim Nan was there. He was also the middleweight boxing champion of Burma. A couple of our knuckle-headed freshmen played a joke on him. He, he came in one day, and he, out in the back of the property, he said, oh, this most beautiful cat. They said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, I'm going to go find it. They said, oh, yeah, you should. <clears throat> most beautiful cat. It's black and has white stripe down it. He captured a skunk, <clears throat> sprayed him all over, put him in a tomato soup bath or something. I don't know, <clears throat> like that. I went to those guys and I said, you better go apologize to him. They said, well, he's a sweet guy. But I said, he's the middleweight boxing champ of Burma. He'll clean your clock. <clears throat> One day I was in my office that semester. And I thought as an American, 
I need to know this. That it doesn't matter what political system we're in or under. We're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. Okay? Let's all calm down here a little bit. This thing has worked everywhere. It doesn't need help. It doesn't need attention. It's a kingdom that can't be shaken. In fact, John Wesley believed. You know, you've heard of him. I've talked to him a couple times. John Wesley said that the greatest tragedy in the church, in all of its history, you think, well, there's a lot to pick from. You know, the greatest tragedy of the church is when Constantine made Christianity legal. That's what he said. Why? Didn't cost you anything now. Didn't cost you anything to be a Christian. It was simple. It was institutionalized now. It was an organization. This kingdom can't be shaken. That's the message of Jesus. This is his essential message. I am a king and I have a kingdom. Now, what is it about this kingdom? He said, it's not of this world. Notice there what he says. We're back there, if you will. Go back to John 18. It's not of this world. He said, if it, you know, he said, look, if it was, <clears throat> my guys would be fighting. <clears throat> my guys would be fighting. You know, if it was a part of this world. <clears throat> and and, I, and I, I, I kept asking myself, Cliff, <clears throat> what does it mean for, for this idea of it not to be of the world? I want to give you, these are just Cliff's ideas here, <clears throat> but I think it comes out of where John says in, the, in his epistle that the three great things that we struggle with is the lust of the eyes, the, lust of the, or the, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This kingdom is not of this world because it has a different understanding of power. Power, I would say, is the idea of getting my way. And in this world, we love power. We honor it. We revere it. We want it so that we can get what we want. So power, Jesus shows a different way. And I'm not saying this is easy. And I said I got all figured out. But if this kingdom isn't of this world, there's an alternative here. And it seems to be from Jesus' side is service and giving. It isn't power up and get my way. Uh, another, another thing of this world is possession. I'm, in, I, I'm, I'm, I'm valued by what I have, you know? And listen, I, I said to Becky before, I said, you know, uh, gosh, I don't know if you would have those guys over. Our house just doesn't look that nice. You know what? I, you fall into that. Our possessions you know, is that, is that what defines us? Is that what causes someone to be of value? I mean, we, it's easy to fall into, isn't it? In the world that Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not possessions, it's gratitude. Being thankful for what you have. You know, I was, 
I was thinking around the other day and kind of feeling sorry for myself and some other things and all going on and, and the Lord just reminded me, Cliff, just be grateful for what you have. Be grateful for what you, friendships and, and, and things and, and uh, you know, just, just be grateful. So it, it's power in the world. We honor, we revere it. It's possessions. It's who's got the most. I remember seeing whoever gets, you know, uh, at the end of life, who has the most toys wins. You see, remember that old bumper sticker? And you remember the other one, whoever has the most toys and dies, still dies. <laughs> You're still dead. <clears throat> My dad used to say, he was kind of an East Texas guy, said he hadn't been to a funeral yet where there was a U-Haul behind the hearse. <laughs> Nobody's taking it with them, <clears throat> right? Yeah. So there's power, there's possession. And then finally, position, position, position. Who's great? Well, the person that's here. <clears throat> I told you <clears throat> some months ago, and I, 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 you know, I, I'm like all of you. We're all the same. None of us got this all figured out. We're still working on it. But I remember I told you <clears throat> a few a few months ago, I had a <clears throat> had a, a meeting in the same day with a person who drove a truck and some flew a Citation jet. At the end of the day, I said, "Did you give the same attention to both of those guys?" When you were with them, did you give the same attention to both of them? Because what do we revere? Position. Well, they're important. They fly a citation, you know. Oh, this person, well, you know, they just drive a truck. Position. This, this kingdom's different than that. And I, I'll just tell you, I'm just going to ask you to consider this in your notes. Be alert to how power, possession, and position are infiltrating your value system and the way you relate to people and the way you work in life. It's just there. Now I want to finish with an idea. <clears throat> We're not going to go to the second point. If this is true, what is being said, I <clears throat> think it is. If this is true <clears throat> about uh, the uh, understanding of uh, the, the essential message of Jesus I want to ask you to consider this just as an application. I think I can get this thing to work, perhaps. What if you committed to have your checkbook, time, <clears throat> goals, be an expression of your allegiance or your trust and faith in Jesus as king this week? You think about that. What if you said, okay, I'm going to commit my checkbook or my time or goals Here's another question. Remember, what is a kingdom? It's the effective rule of a king. What territory, I use that in parentheses, I'm talking about in me and you, is yet to be under Jesus's rule? Is there some territory in your life, in my life, that doesn't come under his rule? Is there a territory, an area, a place that hasn't come under his rule? You could talk to somebody about that. Now, I'm going to make one final thought here uh, because I, I've been sitting on this thought for several weeks, and so I, I'm going to try to get us out of here. Um, <clears throat> but if this is true about Jesus as king, as, as a king in a kingdom, I want to offer an alternative word for faith. Now, this is not, <clears throat> this is just, digging around and doing some research and reading. But 
I want to ask you to consider in your vocabulary, we say that we are saved by faith alone. We're justified. There have been saved by grace through faith. But some writers and some of the guys I read and some of the guys I hang out with are concerned that the idea of faith has become simply a cognitive intellectual exercise. I just believe. My students tell me in their papers, I'm shocked. They say, I didn't know that believing in Jesus would mean I would obey him. Just meant I believe in him. I thought, okay. So there's some that are suggesting that this idea of faith or, or trust is, has, has lost its meaning. Here's the word. If Jesus is a king, and if you trust him, believe him, if you have confidence in him, I want to suggest that we use the word that we are saved by faith. We are saved by allegiance. Allegiance is the word. If I trust, if I believe, I will have allegiance to this king. If I believe he's a king, and if I trust him, I will, in one sense, pledge my, what? Allegiance. We used to do that in grammar school, remember? Every morning, I pledge allegiance to the flag, the United States of America. You know, I, I, what was I pledging? My loyalty, my trust, my confidence. Uh, I, I want to ask you to consider this. This faith that trusts, that believes, is more than an intellectual exercise. It finds its way into allegiance. Now, my allegiance is pledged to this one. There's a great new book, and I've got it on your outline there. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. See it there? Did I not put it on there? Wow. I must have not had enough coffee this morning. <clears throat> Here's the name of the book. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Matthew Bates. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. By Matthew Bates. Now, let me tell you what he's doing, and I, I understand it. He's poking his finger in the eye of the Reformation that wants to make faith an intellectual exercise. Do you know people like that? They say they believe in Jesus and they live like who knows what. Or they do who knows what. <clears throat> I'm not talking about that Christians can't sin or can't make mistakes. Or I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a lifestyle here where faith has just become an intellectual exercise. Has nothing to do or very little to do Matthew Bates, B-A-T-E-S. Matthew Bates. <clears throat> There's another book. Uh, this is a big, I will just tell you, this is a big debate in American evangelicalism right now. What does faith mean? Does it simply mean adhering to a... Remember, remember this. Jesus did not say, repeat after me. <laughs> what did he say? Follow me. Your allegiance to me is follow me. He didn't say repeat after me. He didn't say memorize this list of doctrinal ideas, this orthodoxy. He said, follow me. And if he's king, 
there's another discussion going around, and here's another book by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is probably the most recognized New Testament scholar in the world right now. Here's the name of the book, How God Became King. How God Became King. That's the message of the New Testament. The kingship, the kingdom. How God Became King by N.T. Wright. And that sermon I told you I had to preach on that Sunday <clears throat> came out of this other book. It's still available. <clears throat> you can get it. Susie could order it for you. And I really, I'd hope you would really uh, in, uh, buy some book, buy your books from the bookstore. They really, <clears throat> you know, they need us to kind of support them, if you will, because they're there. <clears throat> Here's the other one. The Unshakable Kingdom. <clears throat> the Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. The unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. It's by an author, a friend of mine talked to Dallas Willard one time. Y'all heard of Dallas Willard, right? It was a couple of you. Said to him, Who is the most influential theologian you ever read? And it's by this guy. Here's his name E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones. I still have that book in my library. <clears throat> I pull it out every once in a while. Willard said, <clears throat> this guy's understanding of the kingdom. And if you've had any dealings with Apprentice here, our ministry of discipleship, or Renovare, you know that, Dal that uh, Dallas Willard's basic understanding is that the kingdom is here now. How? The rule of God in our lives. Now let me finish with this. Thank God. The Lord, <clears throat> there will be a day when the kingdom will fully come, when Jesus will return and will be caught up with him in the air. There is a future understanding of this kingdom <clears throat> in which those adherents and those who have participated will fully enjoy and experience the reality of Jesus as king in an unfettered and in an unrestricted way forever. That's the coming kingdom that is not yet. But for us today, for us to understand that this king and this kingdom calls for allegiance. Calls for allegiance. Scott McKnight, who's another great author, said it this way. If Jesus is a king, the only response and only reaction is allegiance. I want to kind of bury that word in your conscious mind. That when we talk about faith and trust and belief in Jesus, what we're saying is, I pledge my allegiance to him. I trust him and I'll follow him. It's not simply an academic, abstract, intellectual argument of believing certain ideas. We can talk about that a little more if you care. <clears throat> But my encouragement to you today is to go back to Jesus' essential affirmation. Pilate said, you're a king. He said, did you hear that? Or is that from you? Same question I have for me. Same question I have for you. I hear you're a king, Jesus. He looks at you. He looks at me says, is that what you think? Or did you just hear that? Let's pray. Lord, because we call you Lord, it acknowledges and recognizes that you are king. It's not just a name. It's just not an appellation that we give to you. It's who you are. It's 
the essential truth about who you are. And so we embrace and accept and align our lives in allegiance to this king and this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Give us hope and strength and courage. Help us as we go into this new week that regardless of what is occurring or happening, even though it can be serious, and we're not minimizing that, Lord, but that we would walk with the assurance that King Jesus, his kingdom, unshakable, we've been transferred into it. And our role, our job, our privilege is to show our allegiance to you each day. We pray this in your strong name, our King Jesus, amen.